Last Lord's Day, we looked at what I termed as one of the most terrible sections of the Bible. What greater injustice than that the God-man was killed. And as Isaiah 53, 12 says, He was numbered with the, transgressor, with the transgressors. He himself was not a transgressor, yet nor a sinner. Yet he bore the sins of many. And going back again to the bulletin, uh, our melodic line in the back. The Gospel of John is a manifestation of the glory of Christ through many signs of witnesses, so that you may believe in him and have life in, this, in his name, which is taken from John 20, that we will look upon today. And last Lord's Day, we did not witness the defeat of our Lord. We, we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory as he was humiliated in front of the authorities. We, by not speaking up for the knowledge of the task set before him and the glory that he actually gave up in going in our stead only to receive a much greater glory in heaven. We beheld his glory as he gave his life as a sacrifice for his people and their sins. And by doing so, he fulfilled the work that he was sent to do, paying fully the debt of sin, making peace with God and man. And finally, we beheld his glory as his witness gave, as he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. And today, we will, in contrast, look at one of the most wondrous places in the Bible, the most wonderful day in history, the day which our Lord was raised again, the event, the day that all our Christian faith hinges upon, the resurrection of Jesus. The title of the sermon as given in the bulletin is Jesus' Hour of Glory, Resurrection and Appearances. Jesus' Hour of Glory, Resurrection and Appearances. And this text shows us four things of what Jesus' glory does. First, verses 1 to 10, it shows us that Jesus' glory could not and would not stay in the grave. Second point is that Jesus' glory reassures us. Jesus' glory reassures us. My third point is that Jesus' glory equips us for Christian living. His glory equips us for Christian living. And my fourth point is that Jesus' glory is is enabling us to believe. So, our first point, looking at verses 1 to 10. Jesus' glory could not and would not stay in the grave. So reading our text again in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that a stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went in with the other disciple, went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to, to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the lying cloth, but folded up by, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. 
for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Mary comes to the tomb on the first day of the week, a Sunday. Um, as Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, according to Genesis, no, sorry, Exodus 20. And he was crucified on a Friday, and the Jews wanted to take him down before the Sabbath. So he was, um, they counted it as day one, day two, and day three. Friday being the, the day he was, um, was crucified. Saturday as the Sabbath, and then he couldn't stay up on the cross. And then Sunday, the first day of the week, there first, our the first day of the week, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Sabbath being their last day of the week. But he could not lay on, he could not stay on the cross then. So they took him down. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, normally interpreted. And she comes early in the morning while it's still dark, and she sees that this stone had been taken away from the tomb. The stone being placed there by the Romans, guarded, placed, and sealed. Someone had taken it away. And uh, understandably, she runs to tell the disciples, Simon Peter and John, the stone being placed there to prevent anyone from ta- removing Jesus to, to stage a fake resurrection. So she runs to the other disciples. They run also um, to, the, to the tomb to see what's going on. Mary, thinking of the grief that someone might have taken him, not remembering back to his promises that he would, in fact, rise again. But her grief must have clouded her, so she did not see and did not believe. And as Peter and John run, runs to the tomb, John, just having to put that in, that, that he ran faster than Peter. But um, he, was, uh, he was a bit younger than Peter, tradition says. But coming first, he looks into the tomb, but he does not enter. Um, maybe out of respect for the dead, maybe out of shock for seeing it empty. But then Peter, typical Peter, he just barges right in, checks it out, and, uh, and immediately enters the tomb. This tomb who had been a rich man's tomb, as we saw last week, that um, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He had made it for probably himself or family members. It was a nice tomb. There was a place for the deceased to lay on a shelf, sort of, and there were possibly some areas that a few people could sit in. But the entrance was about like one meter times one meter, generally in size. So they had to stoop in and almost... You couldn't just slaughter in. You had to like stoop in and go inside. So they did that, um, and that's why the text says they had to stoop down. But uh, and they see that the the cloth, the clothes were laying there. They had not been taken away with the body, uh, but orderly placed. So one can assume then that it was not the work of robbers or anyone else, because it would. It would be weird to just take the body and leave the clothes. One would might be think that they would take the clothes and leave the body, but that is not how it happened. And so, as is the case with many of us who have believed after this, and as after the Bible fully written, John went in and he saw and he believed. 
But the following part in verse 9 clarifies it to us a little bit bigger because it says that they had not understood the scriptures that he must, that he, Jesus must be raised, but he believed by what he saw. John had, has, was given faith to believe even before understanding the scriptures fully that he must rise from the dead. But he probably remembered that Jesus had said several times that he would rise again. He did not understand the scriptures about this event, but yet he believed. And how is that true? How, is, how true this is also for new believers and also mature believers today, that we do not always understand the scriptures regarding all things, but still we can believe and still our faith is reckoned as true without fully understanding it sometimes, which is our privilege to grow into. But Jesus reckons our faith as true without understanding it all, as John did. He saw and he believed. And we can also behold what has happened and we can believe without fully understanding it all. So hope in your faith, the belief you already have, for what you do not understand at this time will be revealed to you as well. And after they saw this, they went home to their homes. Jesus' glory could not and would not stay in the grave. It could not because, in a sense, it was too, too great for death to hold on to. And it would not because it had a purpose. It had a purpose other than to stay in the grave. John went in, in and saw this glory and believed. This glory in the sense of the emptiness the clothes laying there, those in the pile of glory laying on the bench, but his, the emptiness of the tomb and the clothes being there showed his glory that he was not there. He was raised, and this was Jesus' glory. He was not there because he was alive. And again, remember this in your walk, in your Christian faith. The disciples believed Little or much, even the twelve had a small and faltering faith at times, even though they walked and talked and lived with the Lord. But John believed before he understood the scriptures fully. And borrowing from, borrowing from Luke 24, one can read the famous road to Emmaus, where Jesus walks with some disciples, and he, beginning with Moses and the prophets, explains all what the scripture told us, told them about him. As it says, uh, beginning with, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. They believed when he explained the scriptures to us. John believed before he understood the scriptures. And this is wonderful news to us today, that one, you can believe without understanding it all, and two, you can and will understand eventually that all of Scripture is about him. And I've heard someone say that, oh, I wish I was there on the day on the road to Emmaus when Jesus was there explaining the Scriptures to them. And he, because he exegeted the Bible, exegeting is to read out of, to see what it says crucially and critically determining what, the meaning of a text is generally and most often the Bible. And he exegeted the Bible to them. And we have the same thing that they had. 
maybe even more fully, because we have all of the New Testament coming after the Rotema is explaining from Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the New Testament, from all of it, who Jesus is and what he has done. So we can fully understand the scriptures more so fully than the disciples because they were limited to what they knew and where they were. And this is what Matt and I strive to do each Sunday, that we give what the text says. We do not come up with a fancy idea and preaching that. We try to stick with what the Bible says and giving that. Because then the Bible can explain the emphasis of itself. So my point about it is that Jesus explained the scriptures to them. And the New Testament is, in a sense, the best commentary book on the Old Testament that there is. So we can also, beginning with Moses and the prophets, read all concerning Jesus in it. My second point, looking at verses 11 to 18, Jesus' glory reassures us. Jesus' glory reassures us. Looking at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting um, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, sorry, if you have, ta- if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have yet to ascend to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your, and your Father, to your, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary came with some other woman, seeing that the stone sealing the entrance was put aside. She runs and tells Peter and John and it doesn't specify that how she returned with them, but she also came back to the tomb. So she went with some other women. She saw the tomb, came to Peter and John, and followed Peter and John back to the tomb. And uh, when Peter and John leaves then, it says that she stayed there. She stays behind, and she's stricken with grief, standing by the grave and crying. And finally, she enters this grave, and she sees these two angels sitting in white where Jesus had lain. And they ask her, woman, why, why are you weeping? And she must have been out of herself with sorrow, because in most instances in the Bible, when someone encounters an angel, it's either ignorance, like you don't even know that it's an angel, or it's terror, like Angels are glorious creatures to look upon. But she's just, I don't know where, where he is. She doesn't maybe not even notice that they're angels. She's so out of herself. And I would not try to put myself in Mary's shoes. But I would think that uh, what is going on 
what, who are these people? Why are they dressed in white? Why are they sitting on Jesus' funeral bed? Would be some things to ask. But Jesus is like, where have you taken him? She assumes that they have taken him away from the tomb. Mary then did not um, see the same things as John saw, and he believed. She saw, and she saw angels, but still she doesn't believe. She must have seen Peter and John running off, and I'm, I must think that John has said something. I don't think he is silent when he's running off, but the text doesn't say it, so... But I assume that he must have said something that he, that Peter or she has picked up on. But entering, entering the grave, she sees these two angels. But she must not have seen what they were. Hebrews 13.12 tells us that we must show hospitality, for some have even entertained angels without knowing it. So it's no wonder, really, that she did not perceive them to be angels. Neither does she perceive it when she turns and sees Jesus standing there. She turns and Jesus is there standing before her. And she is supposing it's the gardener. Her reaction is, who are you and where have you taken my Lord? It's not, I don't know what Jesus must have thought at that time. But Jesus is there, out of his own tomb, resurrected. And Mary thinks he's the gardener. And asks him, where have you taken Jesus? And he's like, and she, it says that she turns away weeping. And Jesus confronts her and says, Mary. And then she understands that it is him. Maybe she was mad with grief. Maybe her tears had clouded her eyes. Or maybe Jesus looked a little different. The text is silent on this point, but it's, she asks if he has taken Jesus away. But then when Jesus says her name, then something must have settled in her. And she turns around and addresses him as Rabboni, teacher. Jesus asked her, why are you weeping? It is not out of ignorance from the Lord that he just doesn't have a clue why she's weeping. It's not a, the ignorance of our Lord because, of course, he knew why she was weeping. He probably over, also overheard her conversations with the angels. It was not to play tricks on her like, oh, why are you weeping? But probably was to connect to her. As with the blind beggar in Luke 18, Jesus asked this blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? And it's obvious what the blind one wants Jesus to do for him. Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus, being divine, he knew what the blind one wanted. But still he asked him for the blind man to reach out and to, to connect with him. And Mary, seemingly having forgotten all of Jesus' promises of resurrection, so Jesus reached out to her with her name and shatters her misconceptions and her spiritual blindness, in a sense. The word who became flesh needed only one word to reach her. Jesus' words to her, her then comes not as scorn, not as a rebuke, but as reassuring. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. She is the first person after the Lord was resurrected to behold him and to be sent out 
to give the notice to the disciples that he was alive. And this is, in, an, in a sense, an argument for the validity of the scriptures. Because in that time, women were not viewed as credible witnesses. If a woman had seen something, you wouldn't reckon her as one. You, need, you needed at least two credible witnesses. And women were not viewed that way. They were not viewed as credible witnesses. And if someone fabricated the Bible, then they would never have said that a woman was the first to say it. They would have said a man, because if someone read it and they say they read this woman did it, they would never have believed. But Jesus had other plans. He wanted to redeem that. And he sent her as the trustworthy witness to give his, the good news of his resurrection to the disciples. Even though she, for a moment, did not believe. So he, he, um, he raised her unbelief, in a sense, and he reassured her that she was still worthy of bringing the good news of him. This can be reassuring for us as well. Because how often do we have moments of doubts or unbelief? And as Peter, who even cursed and denied Jesus multiple times, he was reinstated. He was reassured that you are, we will see this later in the next text, that he was reinstated, that Jesus reconciled with him. So even if it looks hopeless. Jesus reassures us still. He calls them brothers, even though they had all scattered, all left him. Only John was at the foot of the cross. All of the other disciples had just fled. And he calls them brothers. He doesn't call them servants. He doesn't call them friends even. He calls them brothers. And how easy it is for us to have a spiritual blindness at times. We don't trust, we don't understand, we don't see. As the blind beggar in Luke, let us daily ask Jesus that we can see, that we can see him, see his glory, see what he has done for us. And as with Mary, even with sight, we're not always seeing Jesus, although we look for him. Are our eyes cloudy, full with tears, closed, distracted maybe? How distracted we can be in this world of entertainment and it makes it all the more important that we look to him and look for him and be assured as Peter was restored by Jesus and as Mary was restored by Jesus we too can find hope in our that he will reassure us of our our that he is with us and that he loves us my third point today is looking at verses 19 to 29. Looking at Jesus' glory, how Jesus' glory equips us for Christian living. Jesus' glory equips us for Christian living. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is happening on the same day that the tomb was found empty. The disciples were gathered, hidden, behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes among them to the place they were. As John 15 tells us, we looked at that a few weeks ago, Jesus told them to love one another and to stay together. And in John 17, he prayed for their unity. And here they were behind shut and closed doors against an unwelcome entry. We're not told how Jesus entered the room, how he got past the locked doors, but he comes there and declares peace to them. Another gospel puts it that he asked for food. So it was not that he was a ghost just manifesting through the doors without a body, because he ate and he showed them wounds and uh, Mary clinged to him. So it's, it's not that he was a ghost. He came to them, his cowering disciples, and he declared peace to them. All is well. They were his brothers, not servants, not friends, but brothers who, has bought, who he had bought with his blood. His blood which has flowed from his hands and his side. Peace be with you. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The shock they felt must have been immense. Perhaps their fear also, because he reassures them two times that peace be with you. He then sends them out to work, but first he equips them for the Christian life they were to lead and to lead others too. He gave them peace so that they could give the gospel of peace to others. They were disciples, sent ones, those who would accept and assist in the spreading of the doctrines of another, as the Merriam-Webster Encyclopedia defines it, one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrine of someone. And also in that dictionary, it says that mostly it's speaking about Christians. And who more worthy, who more glorious, whose doctrine they were sent out to proclaim and to borrow a tiny piece from Luke 24, 33, Luke there describes this meeting as the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. It was not just the disciples. It was the 11, more of a title than number. You had the 12, excluding Judas. So they were called the 11 instead. But it's, the text later says that Thomas was not there. So it's not the, the 11 because Thomas was not included. So there were only maybe 10. John Thomas comes in later. But the point is, it was the 11, the, the, the inner disciples and the other who were gathered there with them. And it is not just then for his disciples, his core group, if you would say that, but for all who were gathered there with them. So this is what it means to be a disciple. You are sent out to proclaim and witness to. So it's not just for the 11 to do, but for all of Christ's disciples. And he equipped them. He gave them the Holy Spirit, and John connects us to Genesis with the creation of man when God breathed life into them, into man. This was recreation, if you will. 
Also in Ezekiel 37, 9, in the Valley of Dry Bones, then he said to me, prophesy uh, to the breath, son, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Reading a little bit from John 7, verses 39, 37 to 39. I will read this. John seven thirty-seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is said about the Spirit, who, whom, who's, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had been glorified then at this point in the, our text, so he could equip his disciples with the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13 uh, follows this up with the benediction for us that may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So Jesus equips us for every good work, every good deed by his Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us. And this is what they were charged with, as we are all, since it was not just for the core group of the disciples, that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Meaning, they were to announce forgiveness and to warn of guilt. We can see Peter doing this later in Acts 2, on his preaching on Pentecost. It is not that we can actually withhold forgiveness, like it's in our hands, and we can share it to who we want to. And it's not as some word of faith preachers might say, might say that what you, what you speak is happening. But it's, we don't create or deny forgiveness. We announce it by, according to the word of God, that we say the word of God to people. And that will be the announcement of forgiveness or withholding, depending on the hearer. So it's not that we can, I will hold this amount of forgiveness in my hand and I will give it to whom I want and, res- and withhold it from whom I want. Just to clarify that maybe cryptic text there. The disciple Thomas then was left out. I can, I can sense how bummer that would be to not be there when Jesus comes and all the other disciples are there and he comes in and they're like, we just saw Jesus! He's like... Seriously, I was not there. He did not have such a humorous tone on it. He was pretty angry. Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Was his anger or sorrow? I don't know. It was unbelief, at least. He had demands that if, if he could not place his finger or place his hand, like whatever they said, he would never believe it. He needed this and this and this for him to believe. And eight days passes, 
And the disciples knew what they saw. They spoke with Jesus, and his breathing on them gave them the Holy Spirit in a sense, or at least the promise of it. And they, they must have been filled with, with something. They must have had this joy. How couldn't they? Jesus was standing there among them. He spoke with them, and he ate, and he had fellowship with them. And then for eight days, they are continuing this, and Thomas is just becoming this, this Grinch, this begrudging man who's just... Ugh. And then another, the next Lord's Day, the next Sunday, first day of the week, it says, then Thomas was present, and Jesus comes there, and the first thing Jesus says is, come, Thomas, place your finger in my hands, in my feet, place your hand in my side, so that you may believe. Jesus knew what Thomas had said, and Jesus knew Thomas's misconception about what he needed to happen was Thomas, the text doesn't say that Thomas didn't, didn't place anything, like his finger or his hand, so it's logical that he didn't. The first thing Thomas says as he breaks down is, my Lord and my God. Jesus confronting this doubting Thomas, as he's been termed many times, was not a scornful rebuke, like, how could you? I walked with you, I taught you, I lived with you, and you don't believe. It was peace to you all. And come, and if this is what you need, Jesus knowing that it was not what he needed, but he offered it. And again, as with Mary, connecting with Thomas. And Thomas then answered how we must all answer, my Lord, my God. Some say that this is, especially Muslims, say that this to contradict that Jesus was divine, saying that it was, was, was my Lord, oh God. It was like more the OMG version of it, like, oh, OMG, it's my Lord who's standing here. But the text denies it fully. It is, you are my Lord and you are my God. There's no denying it. There's no, there's no misunderstanding it. It's the same thing. And if Jesus was not divine, he must have, as the angel or the elder up in heaven in Revelation 5, say, do not worship me, because only God can be worshipped. But Jesus accepts us as worship of him, showing to his divinity. Thomas's words were, you are my Lord and my God. Let them always be ours as well. Let us never put on a pharisaical spirit and say, if I were Thomas, if I was, what's was where? Anyways, <laughs> I would never, I would not have asked. I would not have demanded. I think most people would have reacted as Thomas did. But you can just come here and say these things to me. I need to, I want to, I have to, I need some say he was unreasonable and insolent. But at least he stuck around with the disciples for eight days. So there was hope for his faith as well. Spurgeon put it well that Jesus' interaction with Thomas shows that he shows that the resurrection of Jesus is full of love and graciousness and gentleness to his people. That didn't change. Thomas might have been a fool, but at least he was an honest fool. And 
A commentator says that the whole conversation was indeed a rebuke, but so veiled with love that Thomas could scarcely think it was rebuke. Even in correction, the Lord is kind and bearing over with Thomas's remarks. He's also promising a blessing on us, us who are not Thomas physically. Like we are not Thomas physically. We can be Thomas spiritually sometimes. But he says that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believes. So Jesus' glory equips us for Christian living by him equipping us with his Holy Spirit. And Jesus declares peace to us because of what he did on the cross. He sends us to be witnesses to the world, to our worlds, to witness about him and to declare the way of peace to God. Jesus gave the disciples and has given every, every Christian Ever since that time, the Holy Spirit as a guide as an, and as a helper. He reinstitutes us after our failures, but he also calls us to obedience and faith. Do not believe. Do not, uh, do not disbelieve, but believe. Go to the Lord with your struggles, with your doubts, with your failings. God gives strength to the humble, but opposes the proud. So let us check our hearts on the way to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Doubting Thomas, he did so. He believed and so ending up spreading the gospel to India, some say even China, dying for his faith. Not doubting, but believing, dying a martyr. He had seen, but Jesus says that we who have not seen, we are blessed when we believe, not seeing. Let us rejoice then, because we have everything we need here in the Bible to see. John 1.14 says that, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not to add to Scripture, but the Word became, the word became flesh and became words again, so that we could read it, and in it we could behold his glory and believe. My final fourth point is a short one, because it almost needs no exposition of it, because it's so short and compact and so clear in itself. Verse 30, in Jesus' glory is enabling us to believe. My fourth point, Jesus' glory is enabling us to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us that what is written in here is not all that happened, but it is enough for us. What will the writing down of these events and these sayings and the teachings of Jesus lead to? It will lead to belief. John is, and we should, look, we should too look back at what we've already read about in the book and know that what was written, that we who read it may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have eternal life. So the four points that we have looked at in Jesus' hour of glory, resurrection, and appearances is that Jesus' glory could not and would not stay in the grave. 
Jesus' glory reassures us. Jesus' glory equips us for Christian living. And Jesus' glory is enabling us to believe. What a wonderful chapter. What a wonderful book. What a wonderful gospel of John. Matt will conclude it next Lord's Day, Lord willing. So there are still, still some loose threads that we will look upon there. But this chapter, and up until now, we, have, we know a lot of who Jesus is through his I am statements, through his signs, and the grandest of all, his resurrection. If the resurrection had not happened, all before it would have surrounded to nothing. It would have been meaningless. It would have been worthless. But it did happen. And with it, it should, these signs shows us that Jesus is who he said he was. And by us reading about it and seeing that glory that John 20 says, we can believe and have life in his name. As Psalm 16:10, our Old Testament text said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is applied to Jesus' resurrection. And in the resurrection, we, hope, we have hope and assurance in our own resurrection one day. As 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which will be one day us. We will also be raised with Christ on the final day. And this is glorious, glorious news. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Savior, we thank you for saving us, for dying for us, but much more that you were raised for us, for our justification and the righteousness that you give us. You cover us with your righteousness as you took the punishment for our sins. And by beholding your work, your life, your death and your resurrection, we can see your glory and through it believe and gain eternal life. This is a glorious news and a glorious gift that you have given us. So we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And if someone here has not believed, either here or hearing the recording of it, may they see who you are truly and may they believe and have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.